Hey, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I got a little coaching about wait till the lights come on. I'm like, oh, oh no. <laughs> Hi to those of you who are watching online uh, as well. So, um, so I was thinking about it. Lois and I have been married for 43 no, I've been, I've been alive for 65 years, and I've been in small groups for 66. <laughs> Not really. Um, so, you know, Lois and I have been married for 43 years, and probably 40 of those years, we've been in small groups. And just think of all the relationships throughout the years and various places that we lived. It, uh, it's been an amazing, an amazing journey, important part of our life. Hey, we're in our series called Responding to Jesus. It's a series on Matthew 11 through 12. It's one series in the midst of a bunch of series that we're doing through the Gospel of Matthew, as well as other series in between these series. So uh, we're in the third week of the series. We've been looking, we started with John the Baptist. That's where 11 starts. John the Baptist sends someone to Jesus, sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one? So remember, John the Baptist had one job, to prepare for the Messiah, to smooth the way, and he's in prison, and he's wondering, did I do the right one? You know, are you really the one? He's having his doubts, and we all experience doubts. So we've been talking for two weeks, and this is the last week where we're talking about this, how to keep doubt from distancing you from God. And so, um, there are four other, two other sermons with four other points. Today, we're looking at just one more point. But there's been three foundational ideas that I've introduced at the beginning of every sermon. And they're right here. Doubt will distance you from or draw you near to God. Hardly anybody just stays still when they're going through doubts. Let's not waste our doubts because it can draw you near to God. And we doubt God when he doesn't do what we expect him as God to do. That's usually where, where a lot of those doubts come from. And we've been looking at doubts from a perspective of a person who is already a follower of Jesus, a Christian who has doubts, really, you know, someone who is not a Christian and has doubts about it. So it's a whole different sermon than the ones I've been preaching. Although today, maybe it has more crossover into, into that. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Mar Matthew 11. And uh, if you don't have a Bible and you want to grab one of the Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, it's on page 976 in those Bibles, 976. And as we say every week here, understanding the Bible, understanding your part in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery. There's mysteries today. There's going to be some mystery <clears throat> we'll talk about. But it doesn't have to be a mystery. God wants us to know uh, what we're what, what we're about, who we are, and who we are in him, and where his story is going. He wants us to know all of that. So let's pray uh, for God the Holy Spirit to, to teach us through his word. Pray along with me. Father, we thank you that millions of people will learn from the Bible this weekend. Please speak powerfully through your spirit to convict, to comfort, and to conform our minds to yours. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so we're going to watch, uh, follow along as a couple of five ochres read our passage to us. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Right after that, as we have the last two weeks, we're going to see a snippet from a scene, a clip from a scene uh, from The Chosen. 
uh, series. It's a, it's a streaming series on the life of Jesus and the disciples. And, and we're, we'll overlap a little bit. It starts out, this scene starts out with the, this, those disciples of John coming. They're gone now. And Jesus is continuing to teach, all right? So uh, good depiction. I really think a really good depiction of what's happening, good interpretation of what's happening. So let's, uh, let's watch the first video. Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 24. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Please, listen carefully. Do not waste the time right now to hear the truth that I have for you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so many in this generation are missing it. Do not miss it. Those of you who have rejected John's message of repentance and those who are now rejecting mine, you remind me of the children in the marketplace that play games while the adults are busy. And you know how they pretend to be adults in a wedding or even a funeral. You are like the children who refuse to play. Whether it's a happy game or a sad game, it doesn't matter what it is. And like Aesop's fable, the others say, we played the flute for you and you did not sing. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. You and those in your order say John has a demon because he lived in the wilderness, preaching repentance while refusing bread and drink. And now the Son of Man comes, preaching salvation while eating and drinking and dancing. And I'm called the glutton and the drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> it doesn't matter what is put in front of you. You will reject it. Beware of this. Wisdom means nothing if it's not acted on. Wisdom is justified by all her works. As you see what is happening to those around you, as you see the lives being changed by repentance and salvation, do not ignore the evidence of the kingdom of God. Woe to you if 
you do not receive it. Pardon, no, I would like to remind everyone um, that Quintus has imposed a limit of 25 people uh, for all outdoor gatherings in the latter part of the day. Um, by my you know, estimate, uh, we will very soon uh, be at risk of detainment. All right, so number five, how to keep doubt from distancing you from God. Explore the goodness and grace of God. Explore the goodness and grace of God. Jesus, in this passage, comes down really hard. It's a fire and brimstone type of sermon. And for many of us, God's punish, uh, punitive judgment is hard to reconcile with God's love. And there's a lot about punitive judgment in the scripture. And even if we get to the point where we reconcile it intellectually, it's still a lot of times hard to stomach and it impacts our hearts. And that, that has some pretty big implications because Jesus himself said the most important commandment, the first part of the first most important, the first part of the most important commandment is to love God, not obey God, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with everything that you are, that you would love God. And when, when there's something like this that's kind of playing underneath in our minds and in our hearts, it, it, can, it can kind of take kind of that edge off of, off of love. It can have a big impact. Now, I've been talking about how there is an opportunity in doubt, and uh, it's an opportunity to grow closer to God. Um, and really, I've been speaking from personal experience because this subject today is, was my number one, has been my number one since 11th grade. Take, that's my first spiritual crisis. I came to faith around fourth grade. In 11th grade, I had my first spiritual crisis with a lot, a lot of doubt. And, when, and it, it came out of, I don't remember the exact moment or what it was. I know it was related in some way to a teacher who was a, a, you know, a, a confessing atheist and had us reading some things and asking some questions and having some discussions in class that all of it just kind of came together for me in a way that it became a major, major source of doubt in my life. And I went for months struggling with it and feeling very alone in my struggle. And I felt alone because I thought nobody else has this question or the questions that I'm, I'm asking. Now, I can almost guarantee you there could have been people I could have talked to and they would have said, oh yes, and oh yeah, I still struggle, that sort of thing. But we didn't, I don't remember any sermon, I, I don't remember, it could have been, I don't remember any sermon on doubt or dealing with doubt or you know, hear a Christian leader saying, I struggle with that. I don't remember any of that. So I just kind of kept it to myself and struggled for, for, for months uh, through that. But I came out on the other side of it with a stronger faith and a greater trust in God. I didn't have all the answers. I wasn't satisfied necessarily, but I, I kind of said, okay, I don't understand some of this, God, but I know that you're good. I know that I can trust you, and I'm just going to hand it over to you. I'm going to trust that you you will, of course, do the right thing. So that wasn't wishful thinking. Not really. Not 
I'm just going to kind of create a God in my mind who doesn't have, a, you know, who there's no problem because God is, is this or God is good. He's got to be good because I want him to be good. No, that came from the scripture. It came from the gospel. It came from the story of God that, that God is good, that God is good, that God can be trusted, that because of his grace documented, it's documented in scripture. It came from that. Wrestling with this doubt has caused me in my life to go deeper in my understanding of God's goodness and grace. It's like I've had to go deeper in my understanding of God's goodness and grace. So I'm not going to go into great detail in this passage. There would be some things, who are, what are these cities, what are they being compared to, all that sort of thing. I think you get the basic gist of it. I'll go into some detail towards the end of the sermon. What I'm really going to do is step back right now and just try to offer some pastoral and theological guidance on what do you do when you have um, a doubt specifically about this particular topic, which is how do, you, how do you reconcile the love of God with the judgment side of God? All right, so first thing um, I would suggest, don't explain away God's punitive judgment. Don't explain it away. A lot of Christians try to do that. Some wonderful, ingenious mental gymnastics the reality is it is so pervasive in the scripture. Last week I was talking about detoxing your faith, that sometimes our doubts have to do with, not with the faith itself, but with things that we as Christians put into our faith. That as you go, you know, any era, any great teacher or whatever, you go back and you go, yes, yes, oh, why were they teaching that? Why, why were they saying that? Because that's not biblical. It, that's... Those kinds of things work their way. In, when it comes to scripture, the whole thing of God's punitive judgment, this one aspect, and God's love, they are so intertwined, the scripture has intertwined them. They are part of the same story, part of the same God. So be careful, don't try to separate. You will do damage, you will do damage to the whole. You will do complete damage to the cross. You will do complete damage to everything that Christians have believed from the very beginning. You will have started a new religion if you get rid of the punitive aspects of God, punitive judgment of God. So uh, sometimes people say, well, isn't Jesus all about love? I, I'm really going to lean into the Jesus. It's all about love. It really is. Not about punitive just, judgment. Where did you learn about God and Jesus being love? You learned it from the Bible. The same Bible that has pervasive, intertwined in it, a God who also brings judgment. So we see it in this passage. Jesus isn't all, you know, he's never, but he's not all like, everything is great, wonderful, you know, that kind of a thing. Jesus will speak the truth and he will preach a fire and brimstone type sermon. So don't explain away God's judgment. Secondly, don't downgrade the meaning of love. Don't downgrade the meaning of love. On the one hand, you cannot overemphasize the love of God. You can't. It, it actually says in the Bible, in 1 John, God is love. So you can't overemphasize it. But you can make saying God is love meaningless by not understanding love or how the scripture or how God speaks of love by downgrading love. So 
just an example, let's say there's a fifth, uh, a kid, a boy, he's in fifth grade. And every day he goes to class and his teacher is known for being one of the kindest, most loving people. I mean, everybody says she loves kids. And that, that is her reputation. And she is really kind in so many, so many different ways. But as the year goes on, this fifth grade boy is sitting next to a boy who is a bully. And this bully terrorizes this boy all year long, all year long. And, and, and the boy, the fifth grade boy suffers all year long. And he knows, he sees that the teacher sees what's going on. And the teacher never says anything. No intervention whatsoever, no conversations that he is aware of, no calling of the parents, just every day, it just continues. The bully winds up getting great grades, no conduct marks on his report card, just the teacher does nothing. Now, in your mind, have you revised the definition or the description of this teacher as being a truly loving teacher who really loves kids? Yeah, it doesn't mean this teacher is all bad, but the reality is if, if you have the power to do something about injustice and you do nothing about it, that's not love. And God has the ultimate power in the universe. And if God did nothing about evil, if God did nothing about injustice, you, you really couldn't say God is a God of love or that God is love. You just wouldn't be able to say that. Now, you might say, you might be thinking in your mind, the world is filled with evil and injustice and God is doing nothing. And the scriptural answer to that is God is doing something and he is going to do something. Wait for it. Wait for it. Now, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to stomach sometimes, the wait for it part. But I'm going to give you, in a little while, a good reason to maybe, maybe embrace the waiting. So how should we approach the subject of God's punitive judgment? First, don't explain it away. Second, don't downgrade the meaning of love. Third, don't misdiagnose the cause of God's punitive judgment. I hear people say this all the time. I try to correct it when I hear it. Once, once I tell you this, you're going to hear it. Um, we won't always catch ourselves from saying this, but I hear people say, why would God judge people for not accepting Christ if they haven't heard of him or haven't had a really great opportunity? Why would God judge people? Well, the answer to that question is that no one will experience God's punitive judgment for rejecting Christ and, for, for, uh, and God's grace in Christ. Punitive judgment is the natural consequence for sins. Nobody, it's not, you know, have you accepted Christ? Christ is the is the way out of the hole that we're in. It's not the rejecting of the way out. It's the sins that we commit that put us under God's judgment. So there's a big difference. You may have to think about that a little bit, but there is a big difference between those two. How should we approach the subject of God's punitive judgment? Don't underestimate the evil of your sins and the devastation caused by them. Don't underestimate. We talk a lot about this in our Story of God class. Uh, I circle back to it in sermons quite often. Probably works its way in there because the Old Testament is hard to read many times. 
a lot like this passage, could be hard to read for some. Um, and because maybe it's been my struggle and I designed the course, so it's in there a lot. Uh, but here's the bottom line from a biblical standpoint. God created the world to be a place where heaven and earth meet and he lives with us. It's clearly the primary message of Genesis 1 and 2. We are the ones who create hell. There's just no place in the Bible that says, and then God created hell. <laughs> it's just, it's not there. We created hell. So there's an image that we use in the story of God class that I, again, circle back around to many times. And it's this ripple effect. And it's the ripple effect of our sins. We sometimes, well, sometimes we don't even realize we've dropped the pebble of sin. Sometimes we see about maybe the first ring. We can't see beyond our nose. Sometimes we see the impact of our sin. You know, maybe, maybe we have a habit of talking in a way to some of the people around us that we most love. And we have a way of talking to them that does damage to them. And we can see, oh, you know, I remember at one of our men's summits, a, a dad sharing in his testimony, I'm seeing myself in my son and I don't like what I'm seeing. Um, so sometimes we see that far, but we don't see beyond that. We don't see, okay, father to son to impact on other kids who then impact other kids. And there are other fathers and sons and they're all impacting each other. And there's all of this. We, we wanna minimize, we wanna excuse our sins and then we can't understand why God would judge me because we you know are like looking this far but God sees it all we don't see the full impact of our sins as they ripple out from us but God sees it all he sees the the furthest the farthest impacts of our sin we also sometimes talk about the supply chain of sin. He sees it all. And because he is love, he will apply punitive judgment. It's not going, he's not going to just go, well, you know, I'm just a nice guy. <laughs> I'm love. I'm not going to do anything about any of that. We need to rethink sin in light of all of this. And we have to keep rethinking it. I've shared this story at least one other time, uh, but it's Ted Olson tells this story. And uh, he's a, a pastor and an author and a biblical studies guy. And so it's uh, about an eight-year-old girl. Uh, true story. Uh, her name was Ariana. She's playing in her backyard. And she gets struck by an arrow right in her back. A neighbor was trying to shoot a squirrel with an arrow in his backyard. And his weapon missed the target and instead penetrated her back as well as her lung, her uh, one of her lungs, her spleen, her stomach, her liver, with an arrow. She still, to this day, bears the scars. This isn't that long ago. She bears the scars that came with that injury. Then he says this. He says, we ought to think of Ariana every time we hear a preacher explaining the Greek word for sin. Okay, so the Greek word for sin is hamartia. It means missing the mark. And maybe you've heard that illustration before. What's your sin? There's the bullseye and you miss the mark, right? And it's true that 
that's part of the image of sin. It's not the whole picture of sin in the scripture, but it's true. He says, so we think of a bucolic setting where we are shooting our arrows toward a target at a bay hail, uh, at a, on, on a bale of hay. The metaphor, it's almost comforting. You know, I said, oh boy, I missed. I'll just try a little bit better next time. We see ourselves not as criminals or rebels, but as being off our game now and then. We reach into our quiver for one more chance to get it right. Then he writes this. He says, sin is less like target practice on some isolated piece of countryside and more like loosing arrows on a city sidewalk in the midst of a pressing crowd. All around us are bodies writhing or dead, struck down by our errant arrows. We underestimate, don't underestimate your own sin. Don't underestimate the evil that is in you, the evil that you perpetrate in the world, and the devastation that it actually causes. Even, even if the devastation doesn't happen here that I can see, the devastation might be coming and you've got all these sins and they're still reverberating out into our world. Remember I said, wait for it? Uh, you know, like you gotta wait for judgment. It's hard to do, but thinking about your own sin, uh, N.T. Wright, uh, New Testament, British New Testament scholar, writes this. He says, you know, you hear the question, why doesn't God do something? He says, okay, let's step back for a second. He says, would people really like it if God were to rule the world directly and immediately? Because that's, that's what he is going to do. He is going to rule everything completely, all right? Would they want that? So that our every thought and action were weighed and instantly judged and, if necessary, punished in the scales of his absolute holiness, God's absolute holiness. If the price of God stepping in and stopping a campaign of genocide were that he would also have to rebuke and restrain every other evil impulse in the world, including those we all still know and cherish within ourselves, would we be prepared to pay that price? If we ask God to act on special occasions, do we really suppose that he could do that simply when we want him to and then back off again? For the rest of the time. Back off when it comes to me. Back off when it comes to the people I care about. Don't, don't bring down that, that judgment, but bring, bring it down on those horrible, horrible, they could be very horrible people that are doing something out there. Wait for it. There is a value in waiting. So how should we approach the subject of God's punitive judgment? Don't explain it away. Don't downgrade the meaning of love. Don't misdiagnose the cost of God's punitive judgment. Fourth, don't underestimate the evil of your own sin, the devastation that comes out from it. Number five, don't underestimate God's holiness. Now, this is too big of a subject for me to even begin on. I just want to tell you that uh, for me, a big, gigantic, like it was in the 90s, so I was already getting old by then. And... Uh, and had been at it for a long time. And I read a book by R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God. It absolutely rocked my world, changed how I see myself, how I see sin, how I see God, just understanding what that huge and incredible concept of God's holiness is about. Now, since then, probably a bigger influence on me has been Tim Keller, his book, The Reason for God. I put it in the outline so you can 
Uh, you can look at that. Uh, he deals with that pretty extensively throughout that book. Very, very helpful. Um, uh, I, I highly recommend that for getting a sense of who God is, who we are. You know, until we, we get this, it is really hard to get just how gr- great God's grace is. But um, I'll talk about that in a moment. So how should we approach the subject of God's punitive judgment? Number six, detox your understanding of God's punitive judgment. God's punitive judgment is, you know, part. It, you can't pull it out without doing damage to the rest. But how we understand that is oftentimes got toxins, things that we have put in, you know, ideas that we have that are not necessarily biblical ideas, or they are biblical ideas, but they're only some of the biblical ideas without the rest of the biblical ideas. And on this subject, it's a pretty complex subject. The Bible has a lot to say on this. It is pretty, pretty complicated. And you have to read the scripture in its historical and cultural context, which means there's going to be certain ways that they talk in that culture that we don't talk that way and we may misunderstand. So it's, it's a pretty complex type of top topic. But I think many of us, whether we've ever read Dante's Inferno or not, a lot of us have this idea of these torture chambers at various levels for, you know, people who are bad and all that kind of thing. And that is our idea of what hell must be, uh, just a whole series of torture chambers that God has, has, has created and, you know, kind of empowered people to torture other people, that kind of thing. And I've been convinced by people like C.S. Lewis and others that suggest what if hell isn't, um, isn't something that when you're there, you're just dying to get into heaven. What if, what if hell is you don't want the new creation? You don't want God ruling you don't want to be with certain people. Uh, C.S. Lewis does this in The Great Divorce. It's, a, it's an alleg- allegory or story or fable that kind of gives this idea in a very, very powerful way. It's not saying this is how it is. It's just saying, what if? Just, just think a little broader in light of the scripture. Ultimately, apart from God's grace and God's awakening of our need for him, we do prefer to be our own gods. We do. And, and God lets us be our own gods. That's, that's the primary judgment of Scripture over and over again. It's usually, that's what you want. And he gives it to us. And I agree with C.S. Lewis and others who kind of give this picture that hell isn't a torture chamber. What it is, it's, it's, it's a place that where let's just kind of as a picture of a, a gate and it's locked, and let's say the new creation is here, and you're not in the new creation, you're in hell. It's a place where the suggestion is, is locked from the inside. It's like, I don't want God in here. I'm not saying it's because you're having such a good time. (laughs) It's because that's not really, ultimately, what you want. Now, I could be wrong about that. C.S. Lewis, others that speak in those terms could be wrong. But you look into it yourself, but I know this for sure. We need to detox our understanding of God's punitive judgment. Um, We need to see what is really biblical, not just with one verse that might support something, but the whole of what it says about about God's punitive judgment. How should we approach the subject of God's punitive judgment? Number seven, don't underestimate the cross. On the cross... Jesus receives God's punitive judgment for our sins in our place. If you don't understand 
that message, you have a very, very deeply incomplete understanding of the cross. And Jesus does this willingly. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, together determining that the Son is going to go to the cross. I can hear someone thinking, Henry, you sure spent a lot of time on sin. And you don't spend a whole lot of time talking about all the beautiful things, the wonderful things the humans do, the goodness of humanity. And I just want to say right here, yes, the goodness of you, there is a lot of breathtaking goodness in humanity. But it's another sermon. And uh, this is about understanding God's putative judgment and the biblical framework for understanding the breathtaking oftentimes breathtaking beauty of humanity is that what we're seeing is the image of God that is not completely lost being carried out in our world. It's not something we pat on ourselves on the back for. Look how good we are. Um, Because even the best of us are still sending out sins that are bouncing off and just creating havoc in our world. Please listen to me, or in the words of Jesus in The Chosen, do not miss it. (laughs) I'm convinced that you will never appreciate God's grace and mercy toward you until you understand the vileness of your sins, including their long-range and long-term impact. I'm just absolutely convinced of that. And you may never experience the impact if you, if you don't get that, you may never experience the impact of how amazing grace is. It'll just be a song. It'll just be words. You might feel some warm fuzzies about it. But the amazingness of grace will be lost to you. God, seeing, he can see to the end of those ripples completely. He saw Adam and Eve sin. And he saw every single instance of abuse and war, everything that would emanate from that. He saw it all. God sees it all, and still he dies for us. Perfect love, perfect justice. You're not going to be able to improve on that. To just kind of get rid of this is is just such a downgrading of love and of grace and of the cross and of everything, of your understanding of yourself, of being able to actually see, enough self-awareness to actually be able to see beyond yourself. It's such a downgrading of it all. Tim Keller was um, fond of reminding uh, us of the central message of the gospel in these words. I don't know how many times I've read in different books and sermons that I've heard of his. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. The Apostle Paul in Romans says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. I had a friend came to church here for years and he just kept saying, I'm still a seeker, I'm still a seeker. And every once in a while, why don't you receive God's grace? Well, I've got some things I've got to take care of before I do. I'm like, 
I don't know how else to explain God's grace to you. I don't, I just, I don't know how else to do it. It's while we are still sinners. Uh, we're not going to straighten things out. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. To be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sins, it's where the idea of our sins transferred to Jesus on the cross. His righteousness transferred to our account. That's, That's the gospel. God's grace then becomes the motive behind pursuing true transformation and obedience to God. It becomes the motive behind it, the power behind it. Um, it's, it becomes the cause in our hearts for never-ending worship and praise and thanksgiving. It's the key to loving God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, with everything that we are. It's the key to that. One more thing, in the outline it looks like it's, it's more on the same thing, but this is actually just a final point, overall point. Don't underestimate the power of your desire and drive to rule your own life and kick God to the curb or keep God in his place, you know, just serving your agenda. They're ready, ready to answer your prayers and do what you've asked him to do. Now this is true of every one of us, okay? Until our last breath, we're either going to want to be, we're going to go through times where we just kick him to the curve or times where we want him to serve our agenda. And it's not really about him. And that's why we need God's grace. Not just to become Christians, conversion, that crossing from death to life. Not just to become Christians, but we need it today. And we'll need it tomorrow and every single day until we die. And we will need it at the final judgment. We don't ever leave our need for grace. Grace permeates everything about our lives in him. Jesus notes that when John came and he lived, this is, think of the passage, he lived this austere life and he was criticized and his message was rejected by most people. Now Jesus comes, he says, and he doesn't live an austere life per se. I think we, most of us would say that's pretty austere, you know, traveling around and preaching and all that. But he's like, no, I go to parties. Um, I go to parties of people that I'm trying to reach. Uh, you, I, I eat bread, unlike John. I drink, unlike John. I dance, added that in, in there. But what he's trying to get across is I, don't, I, I live this, this happy, communal type of life. And you reject my message of repentance as well. And basically what he's saying is, if you're dead set on not believing, you're always gonna find a reason not to believe. It's, it's actually something that he says in there, but that's, that's a great conclusion from what he's saying there. Tim Keller says, Jesus is teaching us unbelief is not just a lack of something, it's a presence of something. Unbelief is not just a lack of faith because of a lack of evidence or a lack of cogent arguments. Unbelief is the presence of something else. What is the something else? Well, we could list a lot of things actually, but one of those things, among other things, is this desire to rule our own lives that's at the core of unbelief. Keller 
illustrates what Jesus means when he compares the belief, the unbelief that he encountered in spite of his miracles to children fighting over what they're going to play. Um, I'm sure none of you have children that ever fight about, you know, like, what are we going to play? But he gives a great illustration. He says, imagine a birthday party. One of your kids is going to have a birthday party. And all week they've been all excited. But halfway through the birthday party, you hear a door slam in their bedroom. And you go in there and they're angry. And they're just like, it's a stupid party, stupid cake, stupid games, stupid people. Nothing never happened to you guys, but <laughs> I've seen it. And, uh, and so you do a little bit of digging. And... Um, and what you discover, you know, what happened right before? And somebody who's watched this, uh, they didn't want to play the game he wanted to play. That's what happened. And so um, what, what happens in, in life is you, you'll always find some reason to turn away from Christianity if you're just bent on not believing. That's, that's, a, that's a reality. And uh, so, you know, each generation has their thing. You know, there's a generation that says it's too rational. We need more emotion. We need more experience. And then the next generation, seeing all the mess that happened there, oh, we need more rational, less of all of that. And then another generation comes and says, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. That, that's all wrong. What we need is uncertainty and live constantly in uncertainty. And, and, and every generation is going to find some way latching onto something that will be the reason they say why they don't believe in Christianity. And so one last Keller illustration. Um, he talks about a lady who came to his church and she's like, you have this strong message of grace. I didn't kind of, I've been, I've been churched all my life. I've never heard this strong message of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is, you know, that God does for you what you can't do for yourself. You have to receive it by faith. And Keller asked, well, why do you think people prefer a religion uh, that will never say, you are a terrible sinner? Um, but on the other hand, won't ever say, you are utterly saved by grace. Why do people prefer that? Um, why do they prefer to be told, you, you just need to keep trying, try your best, which also means always be anxious, Never know whether you're being good enough. Try your best to, to pray and always struggle, you know, uh, you know. Try to have a relationship with God, all the while hoping that maybe God accepts you, that hopefully you're just good enough for, for that to happen. Why do people prefer a religion that's neither a dirge, you're a sinner, nor a dance? You're saved by grace. And she said, well, if I'm saved totally by grace, like you say, then there is no limit to what God can ask of me. Don't underestimate the power of your desire to rule your own life. Let God be God in your life. He invites you to receive his grace, to pass from death to life, to transfer your sin to him once and for all. Not like, I gotta do this every day. No, once and for all, all your future sins, all of it, and receive his righteousness once and for all. To be born anew, a new birth, 
to enter into his family, to be a son, daughter of God. You can receive that by faith alone, not by your effort. It's received. It's received. You can receive that today. Right there, right where you're sitting. You can, right now, you can receive that for your life. And maybe you've been, like, I've been a Christian all my life. And maybe you've never received it. Maybe you prayed a prayer, but you never received that. You never really thought much about that prayer that you prayed. Maybe with your, you know, at a camp or with your parents. Receive that for yourself.